Well, if you have a Bible, open with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, find your place there. We may need to turn the house lights up just a little bit. Uh, 1 Samuel. Um, thank you, Johan, for sharing with us. What a, what a testimony to, to the Lord, the truth. So true. And I, I believe maybe there's some people here today who need to hear that. And I believe the message that God has for us from his word today is uh, right in line with what she was sharing from her heart as well. So we've been on a journey through the scripture, uh, learning to read uh, this book as it was intended to be read. Right. Not not like a collection of moral stories like Aesop's fables, but rather uh, the Bible is God's revelation of himself. So as we open this book, we're opening and looking and, and discovering who is God, who is God. And, um, you know, there's a lot of Bible teachers that today will indirectly teach you that this book is about you, but it's really not. Uh, it's for you, but it's not about you. It is. Um, the Bible is telling us who God is and how he intends to save. And so all that we read, and we've been reading quite a bit and studying through the Old Testament, um, is to that end, to show us who is our God and how does he save us. So as we look today to 1 Samuel, let me give a little backstory, a little bit of the history building us up to this point. It's been a, a minute since we've been in the True and Better series, so... Um, After Moses led the people of Israel um, out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, he led them for 40 years in the wilderness, and then Moses died. He had to turn things over to Joshua. Joshua took over. He led the people through the Jordan and uh, into the Promised Land, and they conquered lands like Jericho. We talked about that, and many other cities. They took those lands, and they were supposed to drive the people out and destroy all the idols, but that's not what happened. When Joshua died, there was no leader to take his place. And the Bible tells us that the people did what was right in their own eyes. Do you remember that expression? Uh, The people, there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's a repeated refrain throughout the book of Judges. And what we find is that kind of spiritual autonomy leads to epic disaster, right? All through the book of Judges, we see this downward spiral of the people of God. And God is faithful. Uh, That's one of the beautiful things about our God is that he is faithful even to his failing people. Right? Uh, Aren't you thankful? I'm, I'm thankful for a God who's faithful to me, a failure. But he raises up Judges, which is we just finished the book of Judges. He raises up Judges from all the tribes of the people. And so uh, we talked about, if you remember, Gideon, one of those judges was raised up to deliver the people from the Midianites. And he did that. And then Samson later was raised up to deliver the people from the Philistines. And he did that ultimately through his own death. But all of these judges were imperfect and broken saviors. None of them perfect. None of them ultimate. They were all failures in their own right. All men who needed saving themselves. And this is where we learn that these rescuers, these deliverers were actually meant to point us to a true and better rescuer who was yet to come. Jesus, right? Well, Samuel is no different in that regard, but he is a pivotal character in the history of Israel. And I wonder if I asked you today, what could you tell me about Samuel? What would you say? Um, Many of you may know some things, but probably most of us don't know much. To have two books, two larger books in the Old Testament devoted to Samuel, he is actually fairly unknown uh, as far as uh, a lot of people go. They just don't know who this guy was. Well, hopefully after today, you'll know a little bit more about him. But he's a pivotal character in redemptive history. After centuries of failed leaders... Silent prophets and corrupt priests. Samuel comes on to serve as the last judge. 
a good prophet and a righteous priest. Samuel will um, serve God's people. And through Samuel, God will establish a monarchy in Israel. This is probably the biggest thing that uh, happens through Samuel's ministry to Israel is that the people of Israel come into a kingship. They will have a king. We've, uh, there's a lot to talk about there, but Samuel appoints the first king. Anybody know who that was? Okay, good. Yes, King Saul, right? And then uh, Saul you know, ends up being an epic failure, as you might imagine. And then Samuel anoints a new king, the second king. Who was that? David. And this one is the big one, right? King David. And it is through David's kingship, the, the, the throne, the kingdom of David, that the promise comes that this kingdom will last forever. Right. There will be one to sit on the throne of David, of the line of David, who will be king forever. And this is the point of Samuel's life. Honestly, um, his life is to point us to Christ. No, no surprise there. So you'd think that this story might would open with some political drama, right? Samuel is a book all about moving, shifting from judges to kingship and all of that. You'd think it would open with political drama of governors and princes and all of that. But instead, we open the story of 1 Samuel to a family. And we find there uh, some, some struggles, some challenges. And ultimately, we find a, a woman who is barren. And we're introduced to Samuel as the fifth and final radical birth story in the Old Testament. Do you remember the other ones leading up to this one? There, there were five. This one is the fifth one. There's seven in the Bible, but in the Old Testament, there are five. Who is the first miraculous birth story that you remember? Anybody? There you go. Abraham and Sarah, old, right? She's barren. They haven't had children, but God promises a son. And a couple of decades later and some bumps in the road, but God gives them a son, the promised son, Isaac, right? Well, Isaac grows, gets married, marries Rebecca, and what happens? They also have fertility issues, don't they? Can't have a child, but God promises them children. And so then we have surprise twins. I know something about that. <laughs> Uh, we have surprise twins. Jacob and Esau are born. Okay, God blesses Jacob. And Jacob's name is Israel, changed to Israel. But Jacob, through his son Joseph, leaves the family to Egypt because of the famine in the land. And Joseph's been appointed as a leader in Egypt. So all of Israel moves into Egypt. They grow and grow and grow until the Pharaoh in Egypt begins to get worried this people are too many. They're going to outnumber us and overpower us. And the Pharaoh decides to kill off all their babies. Are you tracking? You remember? He says, take the Hebrew children and throw them in the Nile River. Right? But there's one courageous mother who has her baby, nurses him and keeps him hidden as long as she can. And then takes this baby, puts him in a basket, floats him down the Nile. What was that baby's name? Moses. So this is a third miraculous birth story. God preserves the life of a baby, saves who would be the savior. Moses would be the deliverer of the people of Israel. They're delivered out of Egypt. Right. And then they they go and the story moves on and we move into the, the, the season of the judges. And then we come to another woman who struggles to have a baby. And an angel appears to this woman and says, you're going to have a son and he will deliver. He will begin to deliver God's people. And she says, you shall not cut his hair. He can't drink from the vine. He can't eat anything from the vine. And he's going to take the Nazarite vow. And your son's name will be Samson. Samson. Yeah. So Samson was our fourth miraculous baby story. The season of Judges comes to an end with the fifth story. And the fifth story of a miraculous birth is to a woman named Hannah. We're given a lot of detail about Hannah, and I want to spend a good bit of time with her today. 
want to tell you something. God loves to start something new by doing something impossible. The Lord has a knack for when people say can't, never, won't happen, impossible, God steps in and says, watch this. Many people have written Hannah off. They think, you know, she's not able to have a child. She's tried for all these years. They've maybe labeled her barren. But God had a different plan. God is the author of life. Why do you think these birth stories are in the Bible? There's maybe a lot of reasons, but one would be to say God is the author of life. And every human life, born and unborn, are precious to him. And every human life bears the image of its creator. I didn't mean to get off on that. You found your place in 1 Samuel. Right. First Samuel, let's take a look at it. Um, I, I do want to do a little bit of an extended reading today because I want us to get a hold of the narrative of this text. So we're going to read chapter one, all of it, and a little bit of chapter two. Uh, if you're able, would you stand in honor of God's word? We're going to find out who these people are and how they tell us who God is and what he has done to save. This is the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Remethaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Some of your translations may say Hannah stood up. We'll come back to that. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was Deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have not. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for all along. I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. 
And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord a yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull. And they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Chapter two. And Hannah prayed and said, and this is a song, a song of poetry. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we ask now for your spirit to guide and teach us through your word today. Open our hearts to see your sovereign working even through darkness, depression and suffering to bring about deliverance. Jesus is our hope in life and death. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So I want us to see three big truths about who God is. And then I want to take a few moments and show you how the story of Hannah and Samuel points us to the coming Redeemer, Jesus Christ. 
the first and I think most foundational truth that we need to get a grip on all through the scripture, but especially here. It's a truth we need deeply in moments of darkness. In difficulty, in hardship, in moments where we're out of control, we need to know this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Sovereign is not a word we use frequently. We, we don't use it often, so it would help us, I think, to define it or at least frame it up. To put it succinctly, you could say it this way. God is always in control. Control. Always. From this text, we see that he opens wombs. He closes wombs. It's twice in this passage that we see Hannah's womb was closed by the Lord. Closed, he closes wombs and he opens wombs. We see that God grants prayer requests, and for a long, long, long time, God denies prayer requests. He is sovereign, He knows what we do not. Would you agree? God knows what you don't know. There is nothing he does not know. The more knowledge you gain, the more you realize you don't know. But God never comes to that realization. God never gains knowledge. He never learns new things. He has known it all. God knows what we do not. God does what we cannot. You look into a situation and it's very intimate. It's very personal. It's very painful. It's it's the inability to have a baby. So many very close people to us have struggled with infertility. It's this sense of being out of control, unable to do the thing that you long to do. And what we see in this text is that God can do what we cannot. The truth when it comes to babies is none of us are in control. And that is the truth when it comes to most all of life. None of us really has Control. God does. God is sovereign and he is always, always, always in control. For a lot of Hannah's life, it felt out of control. And this is where we, we realize and we learn that we can't trust our feelings, right? Faith is not a feeling Our faith doesn't rest in our emotions. Emotions are not reliable. Your heart cannot be trusted. Faith is not a feeling. Hard as Hannah tried, she couldn't do, she couldn't be all that she wanted to be. Life was out of her control. You could presume, and I think rightly, that Hannah was the first wife. Elkanah chose her because he loved her. The Bible tells us clearly that he had affection for her. He loved Hannah, so he married Hannah. I think she's first, right? But when time went on and Elkanah wanted to have children to preserve his lineage, to have you know, a workforce out in the farm or the fields or whatever it may be, he needed babies. He needed children to carry on a heritage, to carry on his name. When Hannah was unable to provide that for him, He took on a second wife. He married Penina for that reason. And she didn't enjoy that either. She was resentful to be the the wife of usefulness, not the wife of his affection. 
And so they became rivals. This is not the first time we've seen that, right? I mean, remember the story of Rachel and Leah? Leah was having all these babies and she's mocking and mocking Rachel. And Rachel is in misery because she's unable to have children. This is a similar refrain. And, you know, it may be a popular TV show, Sister Wives, but it makes for really bad reality, right? Um, Marriage just... This is just FYI, you know, just because it happened in the Bible doesn't mean God condones it. Does that make sense? Just because a man took two wives doesn't mean that's okay. In fact, God forbids it. Marriage, according to God and according to his word, is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's God's plan for marriage. Elkanah took a detour off God's plan. It caused a lot of turmoil. Hannah feels like a failure in her marriage. She's constantly comparing herself to this other woman. The other woman, likewise, although she has children, is constantly comparing herself to Hannah, also feeling like a failure because Hannah has the affections of her husband. But Hannah is ridiculed by wife number two. She feels shame. She feels that shame increasing with each passing year and every baby born into her home by another woman. Hannah is stuck in a season of life that she has not chosen. Can anybody relate? When things seem out of control, we need to to be anchored by the truth of who God is, that God is in control. God is sovereign. He's always in control of everything. Let me throw some scripture at you to to just refresh you in this truth. Proverbs 16.33. It says that God even determines the outcome when you roll the dice. That's how frivolous his control is. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is comforting his people by telling us that not even a bird falls from a tree and hits the ground apart from the father. He's that in control that a bird in the forest that we would never know or experience falls to the ground according to his will. In Genesis chapter 50, The story of Joseph we alluded to earlier gives a very personal touch to the sovereignty of God. Joseph, who was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery and imprisoned by his ultimately because of his brothers. He makes the assessment based on the sovereign goodness of God. He says what you meant for evil. Look at what he says. God meant for good. God is sovereign, not just over rolled dice and birds that fall from trees. He's sovereign even over evil. Even over the wicked plans of our enemies. God says, I will use this evil that was meant for good, and I mean it. Meant for evil, I mean it for good. What was Joseph holding on to then? What was the rock of his security? In a moment of darkness, in the prison for 17 years of this up and down, up and down, being forgotten and forsaken. What does he hold to? God is sovereign. Ephesians 1 verse 11 pulls it all together with this great truth. It says, he, God, the sovereign God is the one who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Maybe you need to let that just sink in for a moment. God's got this. He's got it. And in in Hannah's prayer song in chapter 2, it sinks in. It has settled into her heart. And she has got a grip on a God who is sovereign. 
And she seems to come at even her years of infertility with a sense of gratitude. She's even thankful to the Lord for her troubles because she sees the hand of his good sovereign working even in her waiting. She sees that her dark days brought her to a place of desperation and faith that she probably may never have discovered had she been given all she wanted when she wanted it. Do you know that God is a good giver? And he's also the good giver who withholds. Jesus said to us about God as father, he said, even you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more the father? He's a good father who gives and does not give. And for years and years and years for Hannah, year after year, Samuel repeats that refrain, year after year after year, Hannah has to go to the temple and worship the God who has not given. When we get to chapter 2, we get to a woman who has wrestled with this, her sense of control and being out of control, the anxiety and depression of her darkness. She's wrestled and struggled and wrestled and struggled and she's finally released it. The only way she released all that was to take hold of this truth. God is sovereign. Maybe you'd say, well, I mean, that's because she finally got her baby. And I would say we must notice that her face lifts, her countenance changes. She goes away and eats. She worships no baby. No baby has been given. God hasn't blessed her with a child, but she's changed. There's been a change of her heart. Not her circumstance. There's been a change within, not without. And she now is resting in the goodness of a sovereign God. And it's in that rest that God steps in and provides and gives and blesses her with more than she could have ever asked for. And here's what we, we come down to this reality when it comes to God's sovereignty. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He knows what we do not, and he can do what we cannot. Second big truth about our God. God hears and answers prayer. God hears and answers prayer. Hannah goes to the temple, this place marked by the presence of God. She's going to meet with God in her in the depth of her despair. She runs to God rather than rejecting and running away from God. You know, people respond different ways to difficulty. Many people give God the stiff arm and run away from him. But for Hannah, praise God for her faithfulness, her determined faithfulness. She runs to God. And this is a huge moment for I alluded to this as we read through the text. But I want you to look at verse nine, chapter one, verse nine. Just something um, to observe here in, in verse nine, it says after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. So they've gone to Shiloh to worship. They're seated at the table. Um, Hannah, as far as we know, is not eating. That's what the verses just before this mentioned. So she's seated there with them or reclining on the floor rather with them around the food. Everyone is eating. It's a joyous celebration. It's moments of worship. Hannah, her face is. Um, sad. She's not eating. She's wept bitterly. She's distressed, deeply distressed, right? And then something happens in verse 9. And I've never caught this until this week, and it just, it just struck me. Verse 9 says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, and my translation just gives two words, Hannah rose. But the original Hebrew actually says Hannah stood up. Anybody's translation say stood up? 
Anybody say that? Yeah. So stood up. Well, that's interesting. It seems like an unnecessary detail, right? I mean, in order to go somewhere, she would have to what? Stand up. I mean, it seems like unnecessary detail. And so this week in study, I was like, okay, why, why would he say, why would he tell us this? I mean, what's the point of telling us this? It seems like a pivotal moment, right? I mean, she's deeply distressed. Everybody's eating. And then Hannah stands up and come to find out it's actually an idiom. Anybody know what an idiom is? It's not literal. It's, it's a figure of speech. It would be like me saying, um, my wife put her foot down. I don't literally mean she put her foot down, right? I mean, she got ugly with me, right? She got, she got forceful. She, girl, put her foot down. I'm not saying literally that she you know, placed her foot on the floor in this location. What I'm saying with this figure of speech is a sense of determination. And this is what the writer is doing here. He's using an idiom. I've never seen this before, but I love this. Something happened within Hannah's psyche, in her person, in her character. And when, it, when the Bible says Hannah stood up, it's not talking about her posture. The wording here is she determined this is the moment where everything changes. This is huge. Because it genuinely is at this moment where everything changes. She goes to the temple by herself, which was a bold move for a woman. And she goes to pray again by herself, which is a bold move. Let's just think about this for a moment. Hannah stood up. She's resolved to to settle this thing, this thing that's got her captive, that's holding her bound, that's kept her from becoming who she wants to be. She's she's trapped by this ideal version of herself that she can't enjoy who she is, who God's made her to be. And so she stood up. She's going to settle this thing once and for all. Have you ever prayed like that? Oh, I have. She goes to God in her deepest kind of pain with the most determined heart she's ever had. She's ready to finally release it and be released of it. She cries out to God. Her lips are moving, but the prayer's in her heart. There's no words coming out. Eli's even looking at her like, what in the world, man? Eli, the priest, he can't discern whether she's Drunk, praying. I mean, it's a messy prayer, (laughs) right? She's in that messy prayer place. And Eli is like, this woman is a mess. And so he actually interrupts her prayer. Hey, lady, you need to put down the the alcohol and and go lay down for a little while. And she's like, I haven't drunk anything. I'm just crying out to God. I'm praying. I'm desperate for him to do something. And although Eli cannot hear her prayer, God does. God hears your cries. He knows your heart. But even though God knows your heart, he wants you to come to him to make your petitions known. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, it's not telling us that God doesn't already know them. He does. But there's something that happens in you when you let it out. It's this place of utter dependency. God, I can't do this anymore. And it's just a release. And he says, I've been waiting on you to say that. Give it to me. I know you can't do it. But I can. The bridge between the deepest anxiety and the deepest peace is prayer. In 
prayer, we bring our worries, our failures, our humiliation, our depression, our anger, our frustrations. We bring it all to the one who is with us in our pain and the only one who can carry it on our behalf. He sees. He hears. He knows. He rescues. God Almighty. I want to think about prayer for a minute. God Almighty, creator of the universe, the one who, when, when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, do you remember the imagery uh, the scriptures provide? It's dark cloud, lightning is flashing, thunder is clapping. It's scary, right? Fearful moment. And God actually says to his people, don't get close to the mountain. You get too close, you die. You cannot come near my presence. And yet, Hannah runs to the place of the presence of God. She runs to him to pray. And in prayer, through Christ, you and I enter into the presence of God. It's not a little thing to be heard by God Almighty. So ridiculed by her rival, accused of being drunk by her priest. (laughs) But Almighty God is listening. This obscure woman that we may never know in history, a blip on the radar, has pages in the everlasting text of scripture because she endured darkness and depression and hardship with faith. And she ran to God. And he gave her peace. The priest Eli says to her, go in peace. That word is shalom. And it doesn't just mean an absence of uh, frustration or struggle. It means may everything be As the Lord intended. Shalom. May everything be at peace. The God of Israel grant you your petition you've made to him. So she went her way. We see in the scripture she went her way. She ate a good meal. Her countenance lifted. She was transformed. And once again. It's before God gave her what she wanted. It's not just that her prayer was Answered that she was that she received what she asked for. It wasn't just that. It was actually just that she was heard by God. <laughs> she sensed his care, his comfort, and she held on tight to his control. Church, this right here should be a beckoning call to you to pray. When the miracle of peace is as close as your knees, why do you go on walking in the false strength you think you have? Get on your knees with a God who can when you cannot. God hears and answers prayer. Thirdly, God is always doing more than you know. God is always doing more than you know. This is a tip of the hat to God's sovereignty, but it's worth mentioning here. He's always doing more than we know. Hannah's barrenness was the source of so much trouble for her. Her worth and identity were wrapped up in it, and she hit rock bottom as she felt the anxiety and, uh, of a situation she was powerless to change. Sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom before we look up, right? Sometimes that's the truth. We just have to hit the bottom. But Hannah was weeping. She wasn't even eating. Her husband tries to console her, although that was a fail. Uh, If you read carefully, Elkanah, typical husband, fail. (laughs) Baby! Real win, real winner there. Let me tell you, men, you'll never comfort your wives with your own insecurity. 
These were dark days for Hannah. She was in pain. But God works powerfully in our pain, doesn't he? Let me tell you something. God can do more in you in a moment of difficulty than he can do in a month of ease. Much of what he's doing in your trial, much of what he's doing is molding you. He's shaping your character. He's changing your perspectives. This is certainly true of Hannah's journey, but there's always more. This story is not just about Hannah and a, a woman who longed for a baby and God gave her a baby. End of story. That's not what it's about. It's deeper than that. God is doing things in layers upon layers upon layers. And the truth is, you'll never know all that God is doing. In Hannah's waiting, we have the benefit of hindsight. We get to look back thousands of years at what happened here. Here's some some of the layers of what God is doing. One, God is blessing a desperate woman with her deepest desire for a son. That's beautiful. It's intimate. God Almighty sees obscure woman and cares. That's one. Bigger, broader, let's go out one layer. Layer two, God is bringing a deliverer for Israel out of this woman's desperation. God is bringing Samuel, who will be prophet, priest, and judge over the people of God. And layer three, through Samuel's life, God is going to establish A monarchy kingdom in Israel with the promise of a king that will reign on that throne forever. And here we see why this story has so much prominence in the Bible. Right. I mean, have you ever just read a story like this one and go, why is that in the Bible? Why why is this this little family drama of two wives and the bickering and then the praying and then God blesses with a child? Why? Why is this even in the Bible? And it's because it connects the seemingly meaningless dots of history with the eternal King Jesus. (laughs) Hannah's song in chapter two reveals that she knew God was up to something greater than just blessing her with a baby. And so she points us to a pattern and a person. Quickly hit these. The pattern she points to is that God exalts the lowly. But brings the lowly, the brings low the arrogant and strong. God exalts the lowly, but brings low the arrogant and strong. You can see that in her song in chapter uh, chapter two, verse four, five, six. She says, "The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength." Do you see that inversion? What you think is strong is weak, and what you thought was weak in God is strong. Right. Verse five, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. They're starving now. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. But the one who had many children is forlorn. And she just goes on with this pattern of God lifting the lowly and bringing low the prideful, the proud. Well, that's the pattern But then even bigger is the person. Look at verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. Hannah says these words, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Do you realize that she's not just singing a song about having a new baby? You see that? She's talking about what God will do in great and mighty days. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his what? King. Now, wait a minute. How does she get off talking about a king? At this point, there's still no king in Israel. She knows God's doing something, right? She knows God's promised a king. And here's what she says. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word anointed here is the word for Messiah. Did you know that? If we translated it into Greek, you know what the word would translate? Christ. Exalted the horn of his Christ. Hannah's anguish 
Finally, her ultimate deliverance is a good picture of Israel, honestly. Like Hannah, Israel was barren spiritually. Israel was barren spiritually. No leader had led well in centuries. There was an absence of peace, no shalom. No prophet had received a vision or a word from God. And so there was a sense of distance from the Lord. They'd not heard from him. Um, Do you know that determined disobedience is a surefire way to deafen your ears to the voice of God? Israel is living in those days. The priests also were not helpful. Hophni and Phinehas were among the worst. They were using the people rather than shepherding them. The stage was set. Israel, spiritually speaking, was barren. In the depth of their despair. So Samuel's birth marks the beginning of the end of Israel's humiliating defeat against their enemies. Samuel would soon hear God's voice. He would rise up as a prophet to give God's words to his people. He will appoint the first king, Saul, to sit on the throne. And God was delivering Israel from her shame, from her failure, through the birth of a humble child to an obscure and faithful woman. Now listen to the parallel. God does it again through Jesus. Samuel was born to a barren woman to inaugurate Israel's first king. Jesus was born to a virgin girl to announce the arrival of Israel's final king. Hannah's prayer song mirrors Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. Both are humble, lowly women whom God has exalted and they sing about the goodness and sovereignty of God. Samuel's birth and life are the dawning of a new era for Israel. Jesus' birth and life opens a new era for the whole world. In Jesus, your desperate prayers are answered. God hears your wordless cries. He sees your humiliation and He has sent His Son to bring in a new kingdom to your life. If you are broken... If you are ashamed, if you are a failure, if you are dead on the inside. Jesus has come to lift you up, to lighten your load, to give you his success in exchange for your failure, to make you alive. Every sinner who calls on Jesus for rescue, he answers your prayer. He brings you from death to life. He humbles your enemies and he reigns as your forever king. This is Jesus. This is his story. Have you come to Christ 